Kelda and welcome to another episode of Skeezy Deeds. Um, this episode, we're going to be talking about history. We're going to be talking about a historical event. Um, the historical event that I want to talk about is the kind of decline and fall of the Roman Republic. Um, I've always found it really fascinating. As you might have heard, most males can't stop thinking about Rome. And honestly, the fall of the Republic era is the part that I think is most fascinating. Um, showrunners agree. It's the part that was um, selected for coverage by HBO. Um, for, for good reason. Um, it's also just like, it's such a turning point. There's so many interesting threads feeding into that history. Um, cause you, you've got the, the end of the Republic, which is interestingly enough when the Republic was at its most refined, it's kind of wild that once the Republic had sort of codified all its rules, the rules of the Republic weren't fully codified. I'll, I'll kind of talk about what those rules were. Until the reign of Sulla. Sulla reigned at the... Like, Julius Caesar was alive when Sulla was reigning. When he was putting in these rules. Like, literally, within a space of a lifetime. These rules were implemented. And then systematically destroyed reformed and, and to give some context the Roman Republic at this point had been trundling along for a good 300 years or so longer 300 400 years 500 years probably not 500 years but a, a good few hundred years so this the system that had been fairly resilient resilient enough to survive the invasion of Hannibal the campaigns of Hannibal was once its rules were codified was overthrown this is wild um, so you've got that you've got the Roman Republic and then you've got the early stages of the Roman Empire and frankly probably among the most glorious stages of the Roman Empire um, the time of its greatest expansion, the time of its greatest successes. Um, this is the time where Egypt is formally incorporated into the empire. Egypt, which would be a core part of the empire um, until the Eastern Roman Empire lost it. Um, this is this is when the borders of the empire were effectively set against the Rhine in the north by Augustus. Um, such a fascinating time period such a, a an encapsulation of all of these energies in this short really short period of time this 20 30 40 years um where world history was so altered that everything since has either been accepting or rejecting um the, the 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 systems implemented by Augustus, at least in 
in, in, in Europe, I should clarify, um, Chinese history doesn't give a fuck. Um, Japanese history doesn't give a fuck. Um, a lot of other histories kind of got wiped out by the, um, you know, genocidal nature of the effects of this history, but those histories also didn't really give a fuck. But the European experience absolutely is either born from either an accept exception, either from an acceptance or a rejection of Augustus and the empire he built. Now, so let's start things off by talking about the Populares. The Populares were a faction in Roman politics. Now, it's become common in modern times, especially with pop historians, pop classicists, to define the Populares as sort of like a democratic movement, maybe a movement that was, that, that aligns with Republican movements of the 1800s or, um, or or even even some people sort of map them onto socialist movements or left-wing movements um, it's not really a, a one-to-one comparison I think to describe them as a populist movement is probably the best shorthand we have available um, the populares were a faction driven by a desire to improve the well-being, wealth, and power of the masses of Rome. Whereas the Optimates um, were more interested with sort of a conservative vision, maintaining things as they were. Um, now, these clashes sort of came to a head with the, the civil wars between um, Marcus, fucking, what was his last name? Not Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius. Was it even Marcus? Gaius, 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 Gaius Marcus, maybe? Fuck, I don't know his fucking name, fucking Gaius. Um, Gaius, for whom Julius Caesar was partly named, apparently. Um, I've fucking... Don't get me on half these names. I'm getting half of this shit wrong, okay? Um, this isn't the history of Rome. This is the fucking shit history of Rome. So, fuck. It's really going to hurt my brain. <sighs> Gaius. Gaius. Gaius something. Marius! Fuck! Okay, not Marcus. Marcus comes later. It's Gaius... Marius. Now Gaius Marius was very popular because he was responsible for a lot of Rome's grandest victories, especially against the Cimbri, who was sort of one of the last groups of people before the collapse of the Roman Empire to give the Romans a run for their money. The, the Cimbri theoretically could have marched down the peninsula into Rome. They were that terrifying and that powerful of a force. Um, so Marcus, or fucking Gaius Marius, is actually, like, he was venerated as a hero in Rome. Um, but he was a novo homo. And now that doesn't mean 
that, that basically means new man. He wasn't from an established noble family, and so he naturally aligned himself with the populares. Now, the optimates had this guy called Sulla. Sulla was also a new man, I think. Don't quote me on this. Um, he certainly wasn't super popular initially with the nobles, but they kind of, they pushed him up to popular, or not, he made himself popular. Like, honestly, half of the shit that Marcus, Marcus, Gaius Marius got done, he got done with the help of Sulla. They were kind of like a dream team. Um, but they ended up splitting hard on the Optimates um, Populares line. Um, Sulla became really dedicated to maintaining the Republic as is, whereas uh, Gaius Marius was trying to, with his political allies, shift Rome into something that was, uh, that incorporated popular sentiment. Now, interestingly enough, the Optimates saw Gaius's um, endeavors as kind of a threat to the Republic. What they didn't realize is by shutting down his popularity's movement so hard, um, they traded back and forth. Um, Gaius Marius would take Rome every now and then, and then Sulla would come back, kick everyone out. They would like purge um, families from either side. It was generally a pretty nasty time. But the, the thing that Sulla and his ideological allies didn't realize is in doing this they laid the seeds they gave the tools that Pompey Magnus Crassus and Julius Caesar would use to dismantle the Republic they they created the conditions that allowed that to happen if the Marian reforms and not the Marian so the, there were Marian reforms for the military which went through um and they essentially laid the groundwork for the Imperial Legions. Um, a really important one there was he widened the number, like, he basically made it so more people were able to join the military. Um, it was really difficult for a lot of Romans to join the military when Marius started campaigning, because essentially you needed to buy your own equipment and you needed to be able to be like financially stable while you fought. Now, this wasn't sustainable um, post Punic Wars, essentially, because so many slaves had been captured that most people didn't actually have the income to support themselves on campaign. Um, and there was this growing mass of wretched in Rome, who essentially had very few ways to support themselves. They didn't really have an internal market um, the way that Britain eventually developed in the 1600s, which allowed it to develop capitalism and eventually colonize half the world. Um, they were super dependent on these external markets and importing crafts exporting basically soldiers um, and their soldiers were drying up um, Marius made it so that any Tom, Dick and Harry could sign up would have their equipment provided for them would get a wage and most importantly were promised a tidy little plot of land 
once they'd finished their service. This meant, A, Gaius was super popular, Marius was super popular with his soldiers, which is how he was able to do, like, fucking eight civil wars in a row. Um, But it also started to cleave away the military and the citizenry. Before the Marian reforms, the soldiers were citizens. They were people who voted. They were people who participated fully in society. And part of the reason there were so few civil wars before Marius, um, civil war directly fucked these soldiers. They didn't want to fight Romans or even Italians, Italians being people who lived in Italy outside of Romans, because you're, you're fighting on your own land. You, buddy, you got to get back to your crops. You don't have time to fight this motherfucker for like a, a civil war reason. We've got the courts and the Senate for that, mate. Um, so there was like the social wars and stuff. But even then, they never really reached the fever pitch that the sullen civil wars did. They definitely never got to the stage that the Julian civil wars did. Um, So let's talk about good old um, Julius Caesar. So by the time Julius Caesar reaches adulthood, the sullen reforms... We, we, like, I don't know. I don't know, even know if they're called reforms. The sullen forms. He basically just codified what had been an understanding before. Um, essentially had um, a whole lot of prescriptions about how you progressed through government. So you started off with a quaestorship, which is basically you were someone's bottom bitch. Um, after that, you could take on an aedile ship now aediles were like um infrastructure public servants now the really interesting and fucked thing about the way the roman senate worked is aediles had to self-fund you weren't using taxes to fund these projects you were taking out loans now the weird way this worked is you would take out the fattest loans during your aedile ship, use them to build something big and fuck off impressive. Um, so it could be a massive road, it could be a, a set of baths. You'd want to build something that was popular and you basically built your name. Um, you would put something out there that would get people to be like, oh, that person can get things done. They hopefully that would translate into you being um, promoted into one of the higher roles um, preferably a praetor or moving on into a consul now I've fucking forgotten what a praetor was I think they were kind of like judges or magistrates not sure Um, unimportant consul was the important one because if you're a consul you were in charge of Rome Um, There were always two consuls, both sort of having equal control over government. Um, And most importantly, consuls were the ones responsible for prosecuting war. Now, if your war was extended, you could 
you're either you would swap out for the other console when they got elected which is always very unpopular because fuck you raised the army you traveled across the place you set up everything and you're gonna let some other fucking motherfucker come along take over your army and take all the credit no um so there was this thing called um a pro consulship which is sort of like an extended consulship but just specifically for the area where you were waging your war um so there were still two fresh consuls back in rome but you had the ability to continue your war and gain all the glory and credit for it now there was a specified as part of the sullen reforms there was a specified sequence to go through these steps you started off as a quaestor you could take on the optional aedile ship um i think you might be a censor at some point you might be a praetor at some point but it was only until it it was blah 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 until you were 35 i think was the age and that was the minimum you could be considered for consulship now if you got your consulship the year you turned 35 you were considered to have achieved that consulship in your year it was called and that was a very prestigious um sort of accolade uh, cicero got it i think pompey might have even been a consul before he was 35 he was an interesting one um yeah so before julius caesar even comes into the scene there are the slave revolts the slave revolts this is the spartacus spartacus is slave revolt and this interestingly sort of sets up a lot of the dramas i guess that's about to happen um so crassus basically does most of the work to suppress this revolt this is kind of a bit tragic for crassus in a couple of ways um the first i'll talk about now the first is that he never really had an opportunity to win a war overseas and that was the prestigious thing that's what you got a triumph for triumph basically being rome sucked your dick for a day um so but fighting a like suppressing slaves that's fucking police work bro like that's not glorious that's not going to get you accolades that's not going to get you fucking what he wanted and it's really interesting because crassus is probably among the wealthiest individuals to have ever existed and i'm i'm talking wealth as a like a percentage ownership of the the um the fucking the sphere of influence i guess that this person operated in because like the world to the romans was basically the mediterranean basin um north to uk south to like uh, maybe maybe to like the sahara i guess and then east out to iraq um but within that sphere the percentage of wealth that crassus had 
was has has not been matched by many individuals like if he were alive today his like relative wealth would make bezos and musk look like fucking i don't know fucking povos um now interesting thing is that wealth did not give him disproportionate power that's just not how the roman system worked it's really fascinating looking at the roman system and it's like there was corruption there was this um like hereditary advantage that the sons and daughters of of patrician families had there definitely was ways to use your wealth to influence events but it didn't give the kind of full spectrum dominance that wealthy people today enjoy um like this wasn't like uh this wasn't really a change that fully manifested until like the 17 7 17 even 1800s where wealth was kind of equated with good character um and positive attributes i guess um because you know now it's sort of like oh well if you're wealthy you must be an excellent top person um and and roman times like wealth was certainly something to be admired something to be um, thankful for but it wasn't as important as martial prowess it wasn't as important as being a good general it wasn't as important as um being able to rally people um so you have this really interesting situation where crassus doesn't have the opportunity to have one of these overseas victories that would have set him up to be one of those um holiest of holies um he only had his wealth and people derided him for it if, if crassus was alive today he'd be posting on twitter talking about how some people are wealth phobic or whatever um he really did like not have a great time of it and this sort of shaped a lot of his actions going forward it shaped who he made friends with it shaped his allies it shaped his policy when consul now the the other tragedy was pompey magnus now pompey magnus is really interesting because basically the great because he was called pompey magnus as a joke um, he was sort of like this um, ambitious, young general, we'll say as a shorthand. And people kind of laughed him off. They were like, oh, Pompey the Great. Um, and then Pompey goes off and puts together a string of victories that would make Gaius Marius blush. Um, that would make Scipio Africanus feel a little bit threatened. Um, he, he absolutely smacks around um, several groups of overseas foes. He also swoops in at the last minute during the slave revolt and takes all the credit. So poor Crassus, even though he put all this effort into suppressing the slave revolt and did the hard yards, Pompey gets the credit. For oh, fuck me. Um, that's got to suck. Um, 
so that was that yeah that was kind of that they like worked together on that and that was the beginnings their like collaboration there was sort of like the twinkling of a collaboration which is interesting given that Pompey swooped in and stole the credit but Crassus was smart enough to sort of discount personal slights um, in favour of the bigger picture now the third wheel on this tricycle or we'll call it what it was named the triumvirate or the group of three was Julius Caesar now Julius Caesar was very lucky to be alive he'd almost been killed by Sulla Sulla had his name on a list of proscribed persons so basically it was legal to kill them um, and it was only because his mum went to Sulla and gave him a good sucky I mean probably just like asked him really politely to take his name off that he got taken off that prescription list there's also the famous anecdote of the time he got kidnapped by pirates and they um he would joke with the pirates because like basically he became their like little mascot or something he was only at 14 years old at the time um and he would joke with the pirates like ah when you ransom me i'm gonna go off uh, i'm gonna return and crucify you all um, and they'd all sort of laugh about it the other part was the other kind of like fun little joke they would have together is they initially sent off his ransom and they were like pay us a thousand gold pieces to ransom Julius Caesar and Julius saw the note before they sent it and he was like fuck off burn that note immediately ask for two thousand and not a gold coin less um which you know great big dick movement really good for building his legend when he got home which is probably why he did it um so we've got all this happening and then essentially Julius Caesar wanted preferential treatment to be able to enact his his quite radical um populares inspired reform Crassus wanted the chance to prove himself militarily to sort of like become a full man or whatever and Pompey wanted to sort of secure his legacy the three of them agreed to work together now the Roman system was very resilient against individuals who wanted too much power the fear of the king the Roman system was utterly unprepared for the infinite wealth of Crassus, the respect that Pompey Magnus had earned, and this extremely popular young upstart Julius Caesar. Working together, they managed to dismantle the system, not intentionally. All three of them wanted the Republic to be sustained. That is kind of the crazy thing about this this specific time period is the people who destroyed the Republic did not want to change the Republic fundamentally so we'll skip ahead a few years but basically Julius Caesar makes quite a few enemies in Rome um, by being an upstart he builds up but the thing is he's always sort of like covered by government immunity he gets to his first year as consul and fuck man he's been causing some problems at this point right 
And he knows the second he steps back in Rome, he's probably going to go to jail. He's probably going to be imprisoned. But the Roman political system, if you were at certain levels, you had imperium. So if you were a consul, you had imperium. If you were a tribune, you had imperium. Imperium meant you were above the law, essentially. You were, you, were, you were a living incarnation of the law. You were above the law. People couldn't prosecute you while you had imperium. While Julius Caesar was a consul, there was no way for his enemies to kind of destroy him in the courts. Which, they had enough evidence of the shit he'd been doing to destroy him in court. Now, this isn't to say that Julius Caesar was doing anything particularly out of line at this point. Um, essentially, the way the Roman courts worked is if you had the money and the time and your opponent wasn't totally squeaky clean, you could probably get them into the courts for something. Julius Caesar was not squeaky clean by any stretch of the imagination and he made a lot of enemies. So he knew the second he lost Imperium he was gonna get fucked so he looked for the biggest juiciest uh, piece of land to invade so he could get his consulship through but then also stretch out a few years of proconsulship pacifying the area he chose Gaul now Gaul had been a boogeyman for the Romans for a long time the Gauls had helped Hannibal the Gauls had been the first ones to sort of reach the gates of Rome um, the Gauls had always supported the tribes that would occasionally attack um, northern Italy, including the Cimbri. Um, generally, generally um, not very popular with the Romans. Um, the Gauls were, um, but mostly they were a they were a widespread people. They were a very cultured people. Um, they were fierce warriors, fiercely independent, um, and they um, were a threat to the Roman Republic, sadly as long as they existed. And so Julius Caesar sought to bring them under the empire and turn um, their energies towards imperial purpose. So he marches up into Gaul and begins his campaign. Now, Julius Caesar's campaign in Gaul has become part, a legendary part of military history. Um, he fought against the odds quite often. Um, his troops were superior in terms of training. In terms of the quality of troops, the number of horsemen, um, oftentimes the supplies available, the Romans were outmatched. Um, the only things they had was Julius Caesar's cunning, their discipline, and their doctrine. Um, this all eventually came to a head when Julius Caesar um, besieged the fort of Vercingetorix, or whatever the fuck his name is. It's got X's in it. Um, he often gets called the king of the Gauls but he was just the head of one of the most powerful clans 
and he'd sort of made a confederation of Gallic tribes to beat the Romans once and for all. And to be brutally honest, they could have done it, but they lacked the organisation to really pull it home. The Romans essentially built a double-walled fortress. They built one wall around the hill fort that Vercingetorix was defending, and they built another one protecting their own fort because they got besieged by the rest of the Gauls. Um, but through the superior leadership of Julius Caesar and the discipline of the soldiers, they managed to convince the Gauls to surrender. Now, there were other Gallic sub-tribes that they had different fights with. The ones I always like is the Venti, I think they're called. Fuck, I don't know. Um, they're where Brittany is. The Bretons. Fuck. I don't know. Um, but they fought those people. And they had, like, Atlantic seagoing vessels. Now, you, you need high-sided vessels to have a go in the Atlantic. Um, and their ships, they fucking shellapped the Romans whenever they fought at sea. Um... Yeah, so they were quite a threat, and they were like basically like dropping other tribes' supplies with their vessels. The Romans eventually caught all their ships and burned them, and then took over their lands, um, bit by bit. Julius Caesar also like popped across the channel to say hi to the United Kingdom before running away because um, he hated the rain. I don't know the full details of it. Well, I do know the full details of it. I'm not going to relate them here. Um, now, the Romans in um, Italy kept on trying to pull Caesar back because they were like, okay, 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 you've done enough, you can come back now. They wanted him to drop his legions and return so they could prosecute him. And it was becoming more and more blatant, more and more obvious. Caesar thought if he won enough victories, if he proved that he was valuable enough, the Roman Senate would eventually relent and they would sort of allow him, he wanted to be allowed Imperium so he could return, sort his affairs out and then gracefully drop Imperium. He was never given that offer. And so come time when Gaul has been pacified, he is asked to return to Rome. Your proconsulship is up. Get back here, bitch. And this is the point where Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon. Now, the Rubicon is literally just some fucking puddle stream. It is... It's called a river. It's not. It's a fucking creek. Right? It's the symbolism of the river. This is the river... That Roman legions were supposed to leave their weapons and arms on the other side of. Julius Caesar orders one of his legions to march across with him. And they follow because these guys are fucking ride or die Caesar. Um, they follow him into Rome. Um, so something else that happened that I forgot to mention that uh, helped cause this is Caesar basically sent his master of horse, which is kind of like vice 
um, Prime Minister. I really think we should have a Prime Minister and a Master of Horse underneath. I think that would be way better. And actually, it kind of makes sense if Winston Peters is going to be Deputy Prime Minister um, because he also wants to be Minister of Racing, so it's like Master of Horse, you know? Um, but yeah, so like... He sent his master of horse, um, I've forgotten his name, but he was basically a playboy. Um, he fucked Cleopatra at some point. Mark Antony, that's the one. Um, he sent Mark Antony to become a tribune, which was kind of like a people's representative, um, and then used that position to advocate for Julius Caesar's innocence. Now. Mark Antony was attacked in Rome by supporters of the Optimates, essentially. Breaking that Imperium, breaking that taboo, showed Caesar there was no peaceful solution if he wanted to keep his neck. Now, it's really interesting to think what would have happened if Julius Caesar saw what happened to the Republic after his death. I'm not entirely sold on the idea that Caesar was ride or die, um, destroy the Republic, make an empire. I ser- like I don't know if he would like take his own life, but he might decide to live in exile. If he saw what happened to the Republic after the actions that he took. But he crossed the Rubicon, he marches on Rome. He marches Roman soldiers on Rome. Um, the Senate fleets, they're terrified. Um, they're, they're convinced that Caesar wants to come in and stab them all to death. Ironic, I know. Um, but Caesar generally treats everyone very um, well, very genteely, because he realised... But his bid to work, for him to maintain his legitimacy, he basically had to be the goodest cunt who ever cunted. Um, and so he makes a special point of like visiting enemies and telling them how great they are, asking after their children, not in a mafia way, um, and generally building a reputation as like a benevolent liberator. Pomp. By this point, Crassus is dead. I should say. I know I mentioned the triumvirate. Um, Crassus fucking died. He went to Parthia, which is like modern day near fucking Armenia, I guess. Near Armenia. Um, and like, tried to chase down horses with people on foot. It went about as well as you'd imagine. Um, so that's how he died. Pompey's flipped and completely joined the Optimates. Much like Sulla before him, he was kind of happy to ride a Populares groundswell to become popular and well-regarded. But once he has become popular, well-regarded, wealthy, independently... His tone shifts, and now he's like, well, you know, 
we don't have to be changing the rules. Um, so, yeah, that's that's um, that's old mate Pompey, and so old mate Pompey takes the Senate, and he sort of becomes the de facto leader of the Senate, essentially because. He's the only person alive who can hope to overcome Julius in a battle, in a war. Um, everyone else, they're, they're either too young or they're not able enough. Pompey Magnus has, he's got the, he's got the record, he's got the W's. Um, they end up playing the sort of cat and mouse game across Greece. Um, there's a couple of times where Julius could have potentially been snuffed out. Doesn't happen. Until eventually Julius Caesar catches Pompey's larger army. At this point, Julius's army is running out of food. Pompey secured the supply lines. He knows he can kind of just chill and starve out Julius. But the Senate won't have it. The Senate wants Julius dead. They outnumber him. They've got the high ground. Why the fuck not? Pompey resists, but only for so long. Eventually, he sort of has to give in. They, they kind of do, like, they literally do the thing where they're like, you chicken, nyeh, kind of thing. Um, until he finally gives in. He's like, you want to see chicken? I'll show you fucking chicken. And then just goes like fucking beast mode. Um, Pompey attacks, but of course, Julius has come up with a plan that perfectly counters what Pompey was trying to do. It ends in a massacre. It also helps that, like, at this point, these are the veterans who've been with Julius for, like, fucking 15 years now. Um, they're probably the most elite soldiers on the face of the earth at that point. Um, now, Pompey runs away, several senators stay, and Julius is super careful to be so polite to these senators, um, because he wants them to join him. Um, we're going to leave off there, I can continue my saga of Rome later, um, if you want, kind of just wanted to talk about it on my drive. Um, yep, catch up.